Welcome to It's a Good Life, the podcast for entrepreneurs, where it's all about growing yourself and your business. Before we begin, I want to remind you about our ad-free option. Go to It's a Good Life on the Apple Podcast app. You'll see a banner under the logo to remove ads and unlock early access to episodes. It's just five bucks a month, and there's even a free trial. Either way, continue listening to It's a Good Life, and here's our man, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you, and welcome to It's a Good Life, where we are going to take It's a Good Life to a whole new level today. As you know, I've brought many tremendous guests on this program over the years, uh, famous movie stars and athletes and business leaders and billionaires. But I would say that this morning I woke up like it was Christmas morning because I'm getting to interview somebody who's done some work and is part of some work that has been very, very influential in my life. So influential, I'm actually sitting here in the studio looking at pages I've utilized in some of our seminars and some of the findings of Dr. Robert Waldinger. He is a brilliant man. He's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. And he's the director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development. And this is the longest-running study of its kind. He's going to tell you all about it, but it's basically studying what makes a good life. He's recently produced this fabulous book called The Good Life. So the It's a Good Life podcast is going to be featuring the foremost expert on the good life with his new book today with the most powerful study ever done on the subject. So Robert, I'm I'm sorry I'm waxing on here today, but I'm like a kid in a candy store. It's Christmas morning. Welcome to the show. We're delighted to have you. Well, I'm so happy to be here. It's going to be great stuff. I, we're going to get into your background a little bit later on, but let's dive in for those folks who don't know anything. Talk about the Harvard Study of Adult Development. Give us an overview of the study and what it is and, and when it started and what you guys have been discovering. Sure. Well, the study actually started 85 years ago, 1938. We're in our 85th year. Um, And it's so radical because, first of all, no study of any depth has lasted for 85 years. And it started as two studies that were both about thriving. Most research had been about what goes wrong in human life so that we can help people. This was about what goes right. And it started with two groups that didn't even know about each other. One was a group of Harvard College undergraduates um, who were chosen by their professors as fine, upstanding young men. And so they were going to study, you know, normal development from teenage years to young adulthood. So, of course, if you want to study normal development, you study all Harvard men, right? (laughs) So that's not a great look these days, but that was what they started with. And then the other study was a study of boys from Boston's poorest families and most troubled families. They were known to many social service agencies for domestic violence and familial alcoholism and, and mental illness. So these were children who were born with so many strikes against them but they had stayed on good developmental paths. And the question was, what allows some kids who have so many things going against them to stay on a good path as they grow up? And so both of them were about thriving, one, you know, one with a really privileged group and one with a really underprivileged group. I always love your quote, the underprivileged folks when interviewed, why are you interviewing me? What do I have to offer? 
And yet the Harvard guys were like, well, of course you're going to interview me. Who else would you interview? <laughs> exactly. And as I was mentioning before, you know, this is very personal to me. My father and his family, they were about to move to this neighborhood in Boston. It was either they were going to Boston because my dad was born in 1931 in Brooklyn. And they were either going to Boston or they were going back to Ireland. And they would have been right in the neighborhood that these poor kids were studied from. And, and that's why when I first saw this study, I first saw your TED Talk about eight years ago. And I saw the images and the pictures. I mean, it really struck a chord, especially as I was looking at those boys in Boston. And I was like, my gosh, that, that looks like my dad. It looks like his family. And, but also then the content itself about really the essence of what a good life is. And also the beauty of it is that it didn't matter where you came from because you can come from the most privileged environment to be a straight A student at Harvard, have all the money and the resources and power behind you. You can come from Boston's poorest place with all kinds of tough stuff to overcome. Their lives weren't certain. Their lives turned out and the study is brilliant. What was found to be, just at a high level, what was found to be the most important ingredient to a good life? Well, two things. One isn't a surprise. It's that if you take care of your health, it will keep you healthier longer. It'll, you'll live longer. And that means exercise and diet and not smoking and not abusing alcohol and drugs, all that. So, but you know, our grandmothers could have told us that. Health is wealth. Yeah, right. That's the what Health they told is us. wealth. But what was the surprise was that one of the strongest predictors of not just staying happy, but staying healthy was the quality of your connections with other people. That the people who had the warmest relationships with others stayed healthier longer and lived longer. And that, at first, we didn't even believe because we thought, well, how could that even be? And then other studies began to find the same thing. And we began to realize this is a really powerful finding we right. have here. Especially today. In our world today, there's so many barriers to relationships. My dad used to talk about, like in their neighborhood growing up, he says, you wouldn't want to get in trouble because it wasn't just you were going to your home to your mom and dad to get in trouble. All the neighbors would give you hiding on the way home. You know, there was community. There was neighborhood, there was friendship, there was relationships. And today, that's very difficult. Many of us don't know the neighbor on either side of us. Many younger people have social media friends and not too many intimate friends. It wasn't just the quantity of these relationships, but ultimately the quality of these relationships that seems to be a huge factor. Yes. Um, what we found is that warmer relationships really matter and that people who are in troubled relationships, very troubled, like arguing all the time. Um, those people have health that doesn't stay strong, um, but that people who have warm relationships, even if you argue, if there's affection, if there's respect, those are the relationships that keep us healthier. And in the study, you guys were regularly checking in with these guys all the way through their development, all the way through. How many of them are alive today? Well, the first generation, so first of all, we brought in their wives, and then we brought in all their children. So of the first generation, there were 724 of them originally, and now we think about 40 are still alive. Um, they're all in their late 90s or early 100s. And then, of course, the children are all baby boomers, um, so mostly in their 60s. What inspired the study in the first place is, I mean, 1938, this is pretty forward-thinking stuff. Well, the, the Harvard Law School professor who started the inner city study was interested in juvenile delinquency. And he was particularly interested in why 
some children didn't become delinquents, how they stayed out of trouble. So that was his question. The, the, the Harvard study was actually funded by Mr. W.T. Grant. The W.T. Grant department stores were a chain, right? And Mr. Grant wanted to know which qualities would make a young man suitable to be a department store manager. So he wanted to fund a study for that reason. Um, and so, so those were the two initial aims of the study. Did he ever get his answer? What, what were the qualities? He never got his answer because the physicians at the Harvard Student Health Service weren't really interested in, in providing him with good <laughs> department store managers. So he got fed up and eventually decided, I don't want to fund this anymore. And they had to go elsewhere for the funding. <laughs> yeah, well, like I said, there, there was lots of reasons those industrialists did things back in the day. For your sake, so outside of the, the good relationships, one of the things I know the study brings up is this whole dynamic of social fitness. And I just think that's such a huge concept for today. Talk about this dynamic of social fitness and, and what it means. We coined that term, and it was because of what we observed, which is that taking care of your relationships was pretty similar to taking care of your physical health, your physical fitness. The idea is, you know, if I go to the gym today and work out, I don't come home and say, good, I'm done. I never have to do that again. But many people think, well, my relationships are going to take care of themselves, my friendships, my family relationships. I don't have to do anything. And what we found was that the people who had the best networks of relationships in their lives were the people who took care of them, who were really active, who reached out, who made plans with people, who invited people over to their houses, all of that. So what we have come to see is that taking care of your relationships should be a fitness practice just the way you take care of your body. An intentional dynamic. And you know, again, we just were coming out of this post-COVID era where we were instructed and demanded to isolate. And a lot of habits have kept over. You know, church attendance is down 37% across North America and, and overseas, as I saw the same thing in Ireland when I was home recently. There's many clubs and affiliations are struggling. You know, we all found ways of coping. But I think what you're talking about here is that this is much more serious. Like, this is much more significant. We have more stuff to fill up our time in isolation today but I don't know that it fulfills us. And so as we talk about that, you know, this is really crucial stuff and not just to live a long life, but to live the good life as you're talking about. Yeah. And this was happening, the trend that you're pointing to, you know, that we're, we're not investing in our communities. We're not investing in our friendships, in organizations. We're not doing that. And it started in the 1950s. And Robert Putnam, who is a sociologist at Harvard, wrote a book called Bowling Alone, where he laid this out. He surveyed people and found that, you know, we weren't having family dinners as often. We weren't going on family vacations. We weren't inviting people over to our houses, all that. So it was happening. It got worse in the early 2000s during the digital revolution when we all got more glued to our screens. And then COVID accelerated it further. So all of this has been happening for many years, but COVID made it all worse. It's interesting you bring it about because, I'm again, I'm talking about my mom and dad. You know, growing up in Ireland in the 1980s, now I in, never intended to emigrate. Uh, Buick on a hill took out a kid on a motorcycle in uh, San Diego while I was on a vacation, which is why I ended up here. But 
my parents ended up having, they have five boys and a girl. Their five sons all came to San Diego to California to work. In the 1980s, you know, we, had, we were the only people on our street with a telephone. You made a phone call once a month, you know, to America. My sister ended up uh, moving up to Northern Ireland. So my parents had six kids in the house and then they had none. Their kids and grandkids. And although they, we brought them over here regularly, one of the things that I really attribute to my mother and father's well-being and long life is back home in Ireland, golf is not a rich man's sport. My dad was a house painter. And the golf club at Newlands Golf Club in Dublin, where they're just fantastic relationships were formed. I remember when I was emigrating, like I hated leaving Ireland. I hated leaving my mom and dad, but I really hated leaving this group of characters at this golf club. And my dad was, he was the young guy with the older friends. Then he was, he had a bunch of peers. And then he became the old guy with the younger friends. And I would say one of the greatest characteristics of my dad and my mother later on, my mother, when we left the house, you know, she was a, stay-at-home mom till she was 55. She learned how to drive so she could go play golf at the golf club. This became their social connection, rich relationships, rich friendships, people they went out to dinner with, people they had over to their house, people they had something in common with with the golf. And it's still to this day, now they're in a care facility and my mother's like the mayor of it. (laughs) And she's thriving because of these relationships and all these people she knows. And I was there the other day, and I think you'll like this phrase. I was there the other day, and I said to her, Ma'am, why is this place so great? She goes, Brian, when you get to my age, you run out of people to say, do you remember when? And she goes, I'm surrounded by people here from the south side of Dublin. And I go, do you remember when? And they know what I'm talking about. Yeah. She's 92, and she's flourishing. And so I'm watching this in my own eyes. It's not a study. It's not 85 years of adult development. But I'm watching it in front of my own eyes, my own parents who have lived a very long and happy and healthy life, who have this aspect of social connections to this day that still keeps them going. How do you think we can get there in the digital age? How can we get there more and more today? Yeah. Well, it's a question that everybody's worried about. And your parents are doing exactly the right thing to sort of, they keep creating community wherever they are, right? And when the cast of characters changes at the golf club, your dad recreates his community with younger friends, right? So he does all that. And I think the question now is with the digital age, what is it doing to us? And there's some research on this, and it suggests that how we use the digital media affects either whether our well-being goes up or it goes down, that it goes up if we use digital media and social media to connect with each other. So I'll give you an example. One of my friends during the lockdown of the pandemic reconnected with his friends from grade school, from primary school, and he hadn't seen them in years. They're all over the country. And now they have coffee on Zoom every Sunday morning. And they're just thrilled. And, they, yeah, and they're all saying, do you remember when, right? And, and so what we find is that if you do that, if you reach out actively and you connect with people actively on social media, your well-being goes up, your happiness goes up. If we passively consume social media, so if we scroll through other people's Instagram feeds, our well-being goes down. Because, you know, if you think about it, we're curating our lives for each other on social media, right? Like I don't post those those photos of myself when I wake up in the morning feeling lost and feeling <laughs> depressed. No, you know, I, I, I post the photos of my happy vacation. And even though we all know that, we can look at other people's lives on Instagram and say, oh, 
I'm the only one who doesn't have it figured out, right? And so our our well-being goes down, our self-esteem goes down, depression goes up, particularly among young people. So so it seems to be this distinction, am I an active user of social media or am I a passive consumer of it? And like you look at us today, we're using Riverside technology. Instead of just doing a, a phone interview, we're connecting, we're interacting, we get to see one another, we have you know the sense of delight and enjoyment of this subject matter is obvious. So the technology can help us. You know, the technology is not the enemy. It can enhance our relationships. But I think what you just said is the key. We have to be proactive and not passive. I want to delve into the book here for a second. I I love this book and I'm really enjoying it. I'm about two thirds away through. But there's one piece in here I thought I just got to bring up because we're a coaching company. We deal with this all the time. You say in the book, people are terrible at knowing what is good for them. Yeah. Why is that? A bunch of reasons. One is because we're all sold these stories all the time about what's supposed to be good for us. You know, so we're all, you know, think about you're told every day, if you buy this car, that's going to make you happy. If you serve this brand of pasta to your family, right, your your dinners are going to be blissful forever, right? (laughs) So, so we're, we're sold all these ideas about what's supposed to make us happy. Um, and yet what we find is that social connections make us happy. So, and you probably know from reading the book that there's a famous experiment where they gave people an assignment. They were all taking the train in Chicago into work. And some people were told, just do what you normally do, you know, stay on your phone or listen to music, do whatever. And the other people were given the assignment, talk to a stranger while you're on the train. And they asked him, how much do you think you're going to like this? And the people who were assigned to talk to a stranger said, no, I am not going to like this. So then they they completed their assignments. Afterwards, they asked people, how much did you enjoy the train ride? The people who talked to a stranger were much happier than the people who didn't. And so it's an example of why how we don't know what we're going, what's going to make us happy, partly too because relationships are not predictable. Like you don't know who you're going to talk to who's sitting next to you, right? And you don't know how the conversation is going to go. And that unpredictability makes us reluctant to try often. For sure. And so so that's part of what makes this a little difficult to initiate for many of us. Well, what's the old phrase? Better to have loved and lost than never loved at all. Yeah. Unfortunately, relationships are the greatest things in our life, and they're also the most difficult. So yeah. it comes sometimes with pain or effort as people can be rude and all these different things. And socially, as we see kind of cultural changes in front of our eyes, you know, people are losing this ability to be able to connect socially. And so it can make you reluctant. But as I'm sitting here listening to you, I mean, it's like, I hope whoever's listening to this podcast is thinking, okay, I have some good friends who've become more distant. It's time to re-engage. I need to get out. And, you know, Netflix is not my friend. Instead of binge watch a Netflix series, maybe I need to uh, binge listen to my pals. Yes. Uh, Go do something fun. Get out for a walk. Go do things I enjoy with people I enjoy. That's so important. And the other thing that's not our friend is all these voices that make us feel afraid of each other and divide us from each other. And they happen on all sides of the political spectrum, all sides. But any, if you listen to people and notice whether it makes you feel more closed off and more afraid or more open 
and more positive about other people. Turn toward the voices that make you feel more open and more positive. Well, again, like I say, people have found out a way to drive listenership and viewership and obviously revenues with dogmatism. And then, of course, we're dealing with stuff that 85 years ago people weren't, which is our phone is now finding more and more and more of the same thing. So we have the echo chambers. And the next thing you know, you know, it's like you're afraid of your fellow citizen. Or, you know, when you hear this, like coming up to Thanksgiving now, you hear all this preparation for Thanksgiving like it is hell week at the Navy SEAL training. You know, it's here's how you endure. Here's how to avoid this at Thanksgiving. As opposed to, no, this is the greatest holiday that was ever invented. And it's designed for community connection, food, family, fellowship. What's your advice on that? I mean, you've been at this a long time. You've been watching what makes people live the good life. And it seems culturally we're driving people away from the good life. Well, I think investing in relationships really matters. And one of, one of the things we talk about in the book is the idea that all relationships have difficulties. All, all of us encounter rocky patches with family, with friends. And that's not a problem that there are always going to be disagreements, that the question is, how can we work with the disagreements, get through them, get beyond them, and usually get stronger in the relationship when we do that? And so, you know, at Thanksgiving, rather than saying, oh my gosh, how am I going to endure this? Think, okay, how could I be curious about Uncle George? Okay, he tells the same stories, but how could I notice something new about Uncle George, you know? And and think more about what it's, what's it like to be him rather than just resigning myself. Oh, here he goes again. You know, here he goes again, right? So it's bringing that kind of radical curiosity to an, a new, an old relationship and making it fresh again. So we're a business coaching company. What I've witnessed is as these social skills are degrading, people's business acumen is degrading. You know, if you're in the service business, if you own a small business, you know, building relationships and maintaining relationships, finding a need, filling a need is huge. You have in the book this wiser model, and I think it's brilliant. I'd love you to share just a little bit on that. And I love a good acronym as as much as the next person, because I think it's some great tools for what to do and how to do it in both personal life, but also in business. Yeah. The wiser model comes from a psychologist named Ken Dodge, who who looked at what kids do on the playground. And he said, wait a minute, there are ways to help people manage challenges in relationships. So the, the classic example is something happens and you don't understand it. So you get a message from your boss that says, come to my office tomorrow morning at nine. And that's all the message says, right? So Think about what your mind does with that, right? You could do so many things. Yeah, packing my box, I'm gone. (laughs) Yeah, I'm gone, I'm fired. Or it could be, I'm being promoted. It could be so many things, right? So the wiser model says, first of all, watch. That's the W in wiser. Watch, watch what's going on. So look all around you and say, okay, why might my boss have been sending me that message? What's happening now at my workplace? What's happening now with my boss, with me, think of all the possibilities. Don't just land on one. Don't just land on got to pack up and go home. So watch, pay, pay attention to what, what the possibilities are. Then interpret, okay, what do I think the most likely thing is? What's the most likely reason why my boss is messaging me? And then think, okay, I'm going to be open to that possibility. So watch, interpret, interpret, 
and then select. Select your response. So what responses could I have? Well, I could ignore the message, right? How's that going to work out? I could send back an angry email saying, I'm sorry, I don't have time to meet with you tomorrow. How's that going to work out? Or I could collect some information like, okay, what's happening in the company? What might I want to prepare myself for as I go into the office tomorrow morning, right? So select your response and then engage. Engage with your boss. Go to the meeting. Engage. See what happens. And then after it's over, reflect, look back and say, how did I handle that challenge? And did that work out well? What can I learn from the way I handled that challenge, the way I handled that ambiguous message from my boss, right? So it's just a slowing everything down. That's brilliant. Well, obviously we tend to engage with fear. We tend to awfulize situations. And these are big detractors to relationships because we already have the porcupine quills out as we go to have any kind of interaction. So Watch, interpret, select, engage, reflect. I mentioned we have a few questions to finish our podcast, but I, I just want you to share this briefly. You know, when someone goes about writing a book, I've done four, I, I, you know, there's always something behind it and what I'm trying to do. What are you hoping that people will experience from reading The Good Life? I want people to take what they already know in their heart of hearts, that our relationships are important. And I want to take it, from their heart and move it up into their head and move it into action. So what I want them to do is say, okay, I'm going to do some things to strengthen my relationships, to make some new ones, to strengthen my social fitness. That's what my hope is. Well, it's brilliant stuff. And I think it takes it head, heart, and hands, right? It's understand that there's a bunch of science behind this. It's really good for you. It really helps you live longer and it helps you live happier. There's tremendous byproducts that are legacy-wise. And like I say, you guys were brilliant enough to figure out to not only study the 724 guys, but then their spouses, their kids, their grandkids, and you get to see it. It doesn't matter where you start. Money is not about happiness. Position is not about happiness. There was as many great stories from people who came from the broken neighborhoods and the broken families as there was the Harvard, in some cases more. I think it's great stuff, and it gives us all hope that no matter where you start, it doesn't dictate exactly where you finish. And then we all have a great opportunity, and that is every one of us here today listening to this show, we can get better at our relationships. We can invest in our relationships, both in our friends and family and our community, but also with our customers, that it's good for us, it's good for our life, and it's good for everything else that ails us, as my mother would say. Robert, we really appreciate you being here today. I have five questions I ask everybody, just five rapid-fire questions if you want to have a go. It just gives us a little insight into you and where you're from. So first of all, what's the single best piece of advice you've ever been given? You're not the center of everybody's world. (laughs) (laughs) Who gave you that? My aunt. Ah, What was her name? Elizabeth. Wow. One of my, my aunt Liz, um, when, when, when a friend could, didn't come to my wedding and he said he couldn't come in advance. He was very polite, but he didn't come to my wedding and I was really angry And my aunt said to me, young man, he has a new baby. He's got a difficult job. You are not the center of his world right now. And it was like, whoa, (laughs) that was so helpful. What a gift. What a gift. Well done, Aunt Lizzie. What one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? A sense of direction. I am so I am so geographically challenged. Thank goodness my wife has a good sense of direction. 
because I'm hopeless. This is a terrible answer for me because our executive producer, David Lally, who you met this morning, has perhaps the worst sense of direction I've ever met. He has gotten me lost in every major city in the world. And he's sitting here now going, see, I'm also brilliant like Dr. Waldinger. So you've just validated him. Okay. What book has been most instrumental for you in your life? John Kabat-Zinn's book, Wherever You Go, There You Are. Oh my gosh. It was my introduction to Buddhism. And as you know, I'm a Zen practitioner and a Zen teacher. And it's Buddhism has been a very important and helpful frame of life for me. My mom, everywhere you go, there you are, was her phrase. And it's, uh, we, uh, oh. we got that in common. What movie do you watch over and over? If it's on the TV and you're scrolling through, you always stop to check it out. What might that be? Mm, it's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> I just love that film. It's one of the more popular answers. <laughs> and it. it actually was a theme for an entire Mastermind Summit. It's our kind of flagship event. And I did that whole thing. And uh, you know what? You can't go wrong. We, and it's yeah. also the story of redemption and turning it around. And that at the end of the day, relationships were everything. He, he lost everything. Except a man who has friends is rich is the end of that movie. So Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I could see why you might like it. Lastly, what does a good life mean to Robert Waldinger? It means being engaged in activities that are meaningful to me with people who I care about and who care about me. As the kids say nowadays, that's a mic drop. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wonderful having you on here. I highly encourage if you can sense the peace and calmness in Robert's voice, uh, the study he's done, the work he's done, the book is beautiful. It's a heck of a read, and it'll help you think, feel, and do better, which is what we're all about on the It's a Good Life podcast. So this program was meant to be. This interview was destined for a long time. We thank you so much for being with us. We thank you for sharing your gift, and we hope to see you again as our roads continue to converge in the years to come. Thanks for being our guest today, Robert. Brian, this was such a pleasure. Thank you. Great. Well, I'm going to hand it over right now to Mr. David Lally, who's going to finish this off with a wonderful few thoughts and a few instructions for all of you. Thanks, Brian. So good to have Dr. Waldinger on the show after years of referencing the Harvard study. I remember it was 2018 that you first talked about him at Mastermind. For those of you who've never been, it's a two-day live event with 3,000 fired-up people in the audience. At the time of recording, there are about 150 seats left, and we would love to see you podcast listeners in the audience. Go to itsagoodlife.com slash mm and get your seat today. We'll see you next time. May the road rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields, and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time.